Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, Boris Johnson, the day after Rishi Sunak gave his review of the nation's finances, the Prime Minister's facing a growing Tory backlash over those plans to cut the aid budget. It was announced yesterday when the Chancellor said the devastation caused by the pandemic is going to shrink the UK's economy by the largest amount in 300 years. Yes, lots of very stark forecasts from the OBR and from the uh, Treasury. Uh, we saw a little bit of belt tightening as well, didn't we, from Rishi Sunak. He's going to cut foreign aid, freeze public sector pay outside of the NHS. They're being ring-fenced. Also, if you earn under £24,000 a year, you get a little bit of reprieve there. But generally, we are seeing the first signs of a little bit of cutting. The former Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt and David Cameron are among those who have criticised the cuts to foreign aid is saying that for every £10 the economy earns, that we're going to put seven pence towards the poorest people, the poorest country, countries in the world. Is that really too much? I don't think it is. I think 0.7% was a noble thing for this country to do. Well, uh, that was David Cameron. Let's uh, talk now to Simon Hall, Conservative MP for North Dorset, who joins us now. Simon, welcome back to the programme. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Um, the cut in the foreign budget, I mean, we heard there from David Cameron, and there have been numerous others saying this is not the kind of country we are, we shouldn't be doing this. What's your view? Yes, I mean, I can understand the huge pressure that Rishi is under trying to run uh, an economy in these difficult and challenging times. But the world is in difficult and challenging times, and I think um, we don't just give support in the good times. It needs to be given um, throughout. It helps with our soft power. It helps with this global Britain brand, which we are building in a post-Brexit. Um, in. It's also, I think, actually the right thing to do, because if we can grow and stabilise economies um, to make people into consumers, who then may go and buy some British goods, there is a symbiotic uh, relationship. But broadly, I think, what we do have to remember is that for all of our travails and all of our difficulties to invest in the, in the north, in, in, in my region of England, in the southwest, uh, in education and health and housing and everything else, our, our problems, are, our first world problems, pale into insignificance uh, when we consider yeah. some of the huge challenges that international poverty has. And all because other countries um, haven't done as much as we have, uh, I don't think is the best reason 
uh, for retreating from something where we were actually providing global leadership and thought leadership on. Yeah, Simon, good to have you. I mean, this is a uh, a thing that is enshrined in law, the 0.7%. To change it, uh, the government is going to have to pass a bill. Would you vote against that bill? And what about the... Go, go on, Roger, jump in. Well, I was going to say, Simon, I mean, this is something that, that clearly... Do you feel a number of your colleagues would do the same? Is it enough to defeat it, perhaps? I, I honestly don't know. With, with, the, with the Deputy Chief Whip is exercising 252 proxies, it's very hard to, to get the mood of the parliamentary party. I have Look, I have no doubt that Rishi was, was, was right when he said it is difficult to defend, uh, and it's a challenge to defend. But part of our job as, as politicians, uh, as um, we, we should be trying to shape opinion rather than merely... Uh, reflected. And I don't think it is an either-or. Nobody is saying we shouldn't be investing in, for example, our road infrastructure or give uh, international um, aid uh, money. It can and should be both. Uh, So it's not a question of of, of either-or. And what about the public sector pay freeze? I mean, arguably, these are people who took a lot of risk, many of them, throughout the crisis. Not, I mean, the NHS, as we said, was ring-fenced, but there are many others within the public sector who were involved with fighting the pandemic. Is freezing their pay the right thing to do here? Um, I actually think it is, and that won't make me the most popular person. Uh, I, think, I think the Chancellor is, is, is right. I think we're right to carve out the National Health Service and those who work in it, frontline staff, who have gone above and beyond the call of duty. Is it something we want to do? Of course not, because our police have done a fantastic job. Uh, everybody who works in local government has been doing a fantastic job, etc. But I, I think it is a time when you do have to do a compare and contrast between public and private sector. Nobody in the, nobody in the public sector has had to be furloughed. Nobody uh, in the public sector has been made redundant or lost their job or seen a reduction in hours as a result of the pandemic, the the private sector has taken the most enormous uh, pummeling. And therefore, there has to be, I think, that little bit of balance to say, if you do have to make some choices, uh, then we need to do as much as we can to support the private sector. And I can say this as a conservative, it's, it's the engine of our economy. That's what generates the funds to pay for the public sector and other things. Um, it, it's regrettable that we have to do it, but I do think it's, it's necessary given the fact that the security, the job security uh, that has been there over these last uh, several months, uh, if you have been working in the public sector, but, but, is, I would suggest Simon, for most people, a, a better thing to have than job insecurity in the private But what about the bigger picture here? I mean, looking through the Cameron years, the austerity years, we saw public sector pay uh, frozen for for, for a lot of it. So uh, looking at that time scale, those people, those public sector workers have already taken a hit. Yes, but we've made changes in national insurance. We've changed the uh, we've increased the the minimum uh, wage. Uh, We have taken more people um, out of tax in tax altogether in, in, in recent uh, years. So uh, th- these are where balances um, have to be struck. Uh, is it going to be um, uh, difficult uh, for, for people in the public sector? Uh, yes, I think it will be. Um, uh, f- for many, not, not, for, not for all. But as I say, not half as difficult 
as the hundreds of people who have been writing to their MPs, working or employing in the private sector across the country, writing to their constituency members, setting out very clearly and very starkly the enormously difficult challenges which they are facing. Well, Simon, I'm sure your postbag, perhaps after this, will be full of people saying, well, hang on a second, what about MPs? Are you guys going to have a pay freeze this year? Would you be against a, a pay rise for MPs? Well... I think that the country was very sensible back in 2010, 2009, 2010, just uh, as a result of the uh, expenses problems, um, when they said, look, it's invidious of MPs to be commenting upon their remuneration, uh, to be voting on it, to be deliberating upon it. uh, This is what the country wanted. We want an independent body, they said, that benchmarks and and makes awards as it sees uh, fit. MPs don't vote on it, we don't deliberate upon it, we are merely told what is going to be done, and I think that that is is the right way uh, to go. What what about ministerial pay, though? Back in, again, the Cameron years, the Prime Minister David Cameron cut his his own pay and ministerial pay by 5% when he announced the public sector pay freeze. Should Boris Johnson do the same thing now? Well, I... Uh, I thought I heard the Prime Minister say yesterday at, at Prime Minister's questions um, that, that he has done um, that he has done just that. Let's move on, if we may, uh, to to some other areas that obviously have great concern, not least the fact that um, Brexit is hovering, uh, as we know. Mm. Uh, if it comes, I mean, if it comes at all, the damage that it may bring, if there's a deal or no deal could be very considerable on top of everything that the Chancellor laid out yesterday. I mean, this surely could have been handled an awful lot better, Simon. Well, yeah. is, is it going to happen? Yes. Um, in essence, it, it has already happened. Uh, we are in a transition period, transitioning to the um, 31st of December, 1st of January next year. Um, I am actually um, uh, talking to people uh, in Parliament uh, this week. I, I think I'm Probably my most optimistic um, that we are on the cusp of securing a deal, uh, and I've always thought that that was the right way to to do it. Um, we know, um, and you could you can argue over the figures of the impact, but I don't think anybody has ever questioned that leaving without a deal uh, would have an economic impact. You can argue about how much, and you can argue for how long, but it is going to have one. And given what we've just been talking about in terms of how the economy is functioning and the enormous pressures which COVID has placed upon it, um, it would seem um, eccentric to, uh, to not now strain every sinew to secure a deal. It is as much in our economic interest as it is uh, within the European Union, who are also having economic difficulties as a result of COVID. Let us not overlay uh, another set of problems and challenges and burdens to our already challenged and burdened uh, employers and businesses. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of InTrust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, 
about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. We've got to start with Brexit. France accusing the UK of dragging its feet in trade talks. The Foreign Minister Jean-Yves Le Drian saying that the outcome of talks remains highly uncertain, casting a bit of doubt there, and that the two sides are still extremely far apart, extremely far apart, on some key issues. That sentiment echoed also by the EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. Honourable members, as I said, the next days are going to be decisive. The European Union is well prepared for a no-deal scenario, but of course we prefer to have an agreement. Well, talks are due to resume in London shortly, but according to Les Echos, the uh, French newspaper, the EU chief negotiator Michel Barnier has warned his British counterpart David Frost there's little point in him travelling to London unless the UK is prepared to give ground. Yes, not sounding great from uh, from the EU side. It is an emotional roller coaster trying to follow this and all of the various levels of sentiment in the briefings. But there we go, looking pretty sad face at the moment. Uh, then we've got a story about Huawei. The government gets spending two hundred fifty million pounds to diversify its sources of five G wireless equipment. That's after it, of course, banned Huawei from being part of that infrastructure. So Huawei is set to be excluded from 2027 because of those security concerns. And that leaves really a duopoly. So you've got Finland's Nokia and Sweden's Ericsson as the only carriers who who are really able to provide this service. According to yesterday's spending review, around 50 million of the total is going to be spent next year to help build a secure and resilient 5G network, something that we all got very excited about during the last year's election. Meanwhile, equality has become an issue for the Conservatives. Boris Johnson appears to have committed the Tories to equal gender representation at Westminster. In a video message for the 50-50 campaign, the Prime Minister said, if we're going to achieve 50-50, we need the biggest ever recruitment drive of women as candidates, activists and potential MPs. It's a historic moment, as the Tories have previously stopped short of making a commitment on the gender balance in Parliament. Though I should add, Seb, uh, of course, the only two female Prime Ministers have both been Tories. Yes, but if you look at the balance of parties, Labour really does have the upper hand. I think it's 51% of uh, their MPs are women. And that is because of all women shortlists. And it would be really interesting to see if the Tories commit to that as well. If they do, then we can be sure we'll be heading at the next election for an even bigger uh, share of MPs that are women approaching that 50% figure overall. The 50-50 campaign will be very pleased with that, of course. Right, let's talk about the vaccine. AstraZeneca becoming the latest pharma company to update us on its research this week. It's said that its jab prevents on average 70% of COVID cases. But since then, case questions are being raised about the results of that trial. AstraZeneca acknowledging a manufacturing error, some dosage problems going on. Joining us now to talk about uh, the vaccine in general is Lois Clay Baker. She's one of the test patients for the Oxford vaccine. Lois, good to have you with us. I guess, first of all, we've just got to hear what the process is like of signing up, of having the, the, the dose or the, or the placebo, indeed, administered to you. Tell us what it's like. Yeah, hi, thank you for having me on. So um, it was quite a straightforward process. I contacted them because I heard that they were running this trial and then they called me in for a screening visit 
And this all happened really quickly. So the screening visit was they just asked me some questions about my health, got my records from my doctor, checked that that was all okay. And then I think it was less than a week later where I went into the research facility in Hammersmith to get um, the injection. They took some bloods first. And then I just had the injection and it was just like a flu jab. It just went into the top of your arm. Um, and yeah, that was all fine. And they kept me there for half an hour just to watch me and check my blood pressure and things like that. They took some more blood tests afterwards as well. Um, and then after that, I had to just take my temperature every day for a couple of weeks and do a symptom diary. And you didn't get any side effects, presumably? No, no side effects at all. My, it didn't, and it didn't hurt at the time, but the day after, my arm was more painful than it was for other vaccines I'd had. But at the time, it was um, completely fine. And yeah, no side effects. And, and what was the motivation to sign up for this? I mean, many would consider it quite a risky prospect to have an unknown substance uh, injected into you over, over a period of time. Yeah, sure. I mean, at the time, it didn't feel especially risky to me. I think they were quite reassuring. Um, for me, the motivation was that normally I'm a medical student. But when I first, at the time when I did this back in April, when I got in touch with them, um, I wasn't on placement anymore, which is what I'd usually be doing. And I was volunteering as a healthcare assistant in an intensive care unit with COVID patients. So I was kind of seeing that COVID, very, people very badly affected by COVID. And then I heard that they were running this trial. So I really was quite eager to get involved and help out as much as I could. Lois, what about afterwards? I mean, I suppose the, the way the test would be effective is if you were exposed to the virus. That's how they'd know whether or not it works. Were you encouraged to expose yourself, to not expose yourself, to wear a mask, not wear a mask? I mean, were you given any kind of guidance on any of this? Yeah, I think that's interesting, actually. With the very first people that were on the Oxford trial, they were people who weren't going to be in contact with the virus at all because they were testing the vaccine safety. But with my group, we were actually all healthcare workers. And they want, they specifically wanted healthcare workers who are in environments like A&E and intensive care where they would be seeing COVID patients. Because I think, and then they compared the vaccine group and the placebo group to see who got the higher rate of COVID. So yeah, they deliberately did want people who were naturally going to be exposed to it. So did you have antibody tests? Did you know whether you ended up being exposed? And indeed, did you know which group you were in in the end? No, I still don't know which group I'm in. And they have been, I've had a few more blood tests where they do antibodies, but they won't tell us because it's still blinded. So I don't know, but I haven't had COVID. And I have been around quite a lot of COVID, so... Now, one interesting thing of this, Les, I mean, as you say, you are in, involved in, the, in medicine yourself, so you obviously have, have a better understanding, I guess, than most of us as to what's going on and, and why. Now, there have been some criticisms about the trial. There was the fact that there were two sequences, one with a half dose and then a full dose later, the age profile of the people being put in each regimen that was put out there, and doubts sort of being expressed in many count areas about this now. What's your feeling about it? I think it's really hard for me to comment, and I'm not like a vaccine scientist, but I think the fact that they've shown that this vaccine, you, you know, it does generate an immune response, I think that's really positive. I think we're just kind of waiting to hear what all this further analysis is. And, you know, I, I hope that it works. But, yeah, I think it's important that they continue to investigate that because, you know, we want the best results possible. Uh, and what about working in a pandemic? Uh, you say you're a medical student, so presumably so early on in your career. I mean, it sounds like a real baptism of fire. What has the whole pandemic been like for you? I have been finding it quite difficult, especially recently. I'm at like a smaller 
hospital called the District General Hospital. And, you know, they, they are still very badly affected by COVID. It does affect every decision they make. Um, it's affecting all the doctors and all their training and all the patients and the patient's family. It is still difficult at the moment. And I suppose there would be people who might be listening to this who have doubts about taking the vaccine. We know there are people out there. There are obviously the people who fall into the anti-vax area more generally. But those who have concerns about something that has been rushed through, uh, you know, normally it takes, well, people say up to a decade to get something like this through, and it's happened in months. What would you say to them if they said, is this something I should take? Yeah, I mean, I understand that um, lots of people are nervous. I've seen some research that said, from my GP that said like 80% of adults would get this vaccine. So I think it is kind of quite a vocal minority who have doubts. And to the people who do have doubts, I think it's important to remember that the scientists are doing this very thoroughly. I think lots of the bureaucracy has been cut out, but it's still safe. And then the other thing I want, I would encourage people to remember is um, if you do have doubts, talk to your GP or your pharmacist. Um, it's okay to be worried about something like this, I think. But my understanding is it's very safe and they've done it very thoroughly. Um, I, I, I mean, what is the, uh, the the best way, do you think, of convincing these people? I mean, I, I see a lot of people who wouldn't identify as anti-vaxxers, wouldn't think of themselves as conspiracy theorists. I mean, they're just people trying to, to separate uh, fact from fiction here and try and make a reasonable argument. And even they are saying that they wouldn't necessarily have the vaccine or even be the first to have the vaccine. Uh, what would be the best way of, of winning them over and convincing them to get on board? Because it is going to have to be a group effort, isn't it? If we get if we want to get some level of herd immunity and make sure the vaccine works, you are going to need a critical mass of people getting on board with it. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think it's a really good point that most of these people who don't want vaccines aren't conspiracy theorists. They're just people who don't have the information that they need to make an informed decision. And I think, you know, as healthcare professionals and scientists, there's a responsibility to educate people and just get that information out in an accessible way. And I think that should make quite a big difference. I think there's lots of false information or just not very much information about the vaccine process. So I think if that was simplified, hopefully that would be able to convince a lot of people. And okay. the other thing I think is if people realised how serious COVID was. Well, you, you of course have seen that. that you, you've seen yeah. that for close up, of course. Just one, one last question on this, Lois. I mean, you, your family, did you tell them you were doing this? Did you have to convince them uh, how that the jury <laughs> would be able to do this and should do it? I actually, I don't actually think I told my parents before. I think there's so much other stuff going on. Um, and they were worried about me working in a intensive care unit anyway, so I didn't want to make them extra worried. Um, but after I had it, I did tell them, and I think they were just quite interested and quite proud of me. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.